This is unstructured. Hey everybody, today I'm super excited. I have another composer on, which is awesome. I really I enjoy stretching out beyond my knowledge level and try to learn different things. And this is Lars Deutsch, and he is a two-time Emmy Award winner. So he's really packing it. Now, Lars, am yeah. I correct in saying that Lars Deutsch is just saying Lars German? Yes, that is correct. It's uh, it's a very fitting name, and I um, I do get asked every now and then if it's fake or not. No, that's my actual name, and oh, wow. it's not very common in Germany at all for some weird reason. So that's irony. That is irony. So people make fun of made fun of me in school in Germany, and I have met a lot more people called Deutsch here in LA than I ever have in Germany, which is also interesting. <laughs> Are you related? Uh, I'm not related. I hear, I, I don't know if that's true. Just somebody told me in passing that the, uh, Deutsch is a Jewish name. And okay. I have um, I have not ever investigated my family tree or anything, so I have no idea. Hmm. We are not the most religious bunch. Um, and so I, I, I really don't know. But, you know, you have two big brands, your Deutsch, the advertising agency, and the... Uh, the glasses store chain or something. So with the same name. So, um, well, there you go. Have you got, done any work for them? No, the people of Deutsch keep ignoring me. I kind of like very close <laughs> to pretending I'm part of the mothership or something, but no, um, <laughs> not yet. Okay. Um, you had, um, written on LinkedIn, but I guess this summer you've been pretty busy. You've, um, done some work for Budweiser, CBS, BET, Fox, Amazon, and, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. Yeah, it's um, the I don't know March to July or something. There were a lot of projects with that you know with good names attached, and um, it it comes and goes in waves. And what was nice about this time, it's, your life as a composer gets much easier if something is cut well and looks well. So you know, it gives you a chance to write better music. And if you have big images, you can also do more in the music. So that was a fun fun summer i've i've done a a few voiceover interviews and i can't help but think that there's some parallels like um you're everywhere but we don't really necessarily notice it or pay attention to it isn't that a fair statement yeah i mean nobody nobody cares about the name of the composer and especially when you i mean in, in film and tv a little more but especially in advertising or something you yeah nobody Nobody cares. I don't know. I always, I always feel I should, you know, I should be every, really should be everywhere. But <laughs> uh, it, like every now and then, it's it's cool when you, um, I don't know, when people discover your work. Yes, yeah, that's awesome. What I like about it is you are sort of the ultimate team player. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I uh, totally agree with the other composer you had on your show, and he makes a very valid point how, um, you know, the, the film production is kind of, is tricky, and people are stranded when it comes to sound. So there's a lot of trust, and um, being a team player and delivering on time is a big deal. And I can totally relate to that because I hire, um, like, I, I hire outside people. I hire sound engineers sometimes, so, like, I, I just hired a choir to sing on one of my pieces. So hmm. my word and my credibility and all of this is then depending on the sound engineer and on the choir. 
So I understand the other way around how how people are relying on me. And sometimes when you have a bigger client with a tight deadline, how everybody is is scared and worried. And you can make people's lives a little easier. And it's very important that you kind of understand that role, you know. And uh, so I, I try I try to be the, the ultimate team player. Mm-hmm. It is a little bit of a challenge because you sometimes need to say things people don't want to hear, not mm. for your own benefit, but for their benefit. And that's uh, that can be tricky. It, it can be tricky because it's, it's a, I fully respect the hierarchy here and it's somebody else's project, which is very important. But sometimes because of my work, I have a knowledge advantage. So getting this exchange right, it can be tricky. So I sometimes need to disagree but in a in a very constructive way, and so they feel taken care of, not let let down, and that's you know that depends very much on who you talk to. How do you um, deal with uh, people's egos? That's something I've spoken with people about. Um, I um, a buddy of mine gave me some good advice. He said he usually gives every client some small task to do that is pointless and seems like off topic and sees how they respond and from then on he knows how to act hmm. i'm not doing that yet but i'm, I'm looking for small signs and um there is I, I had a case there's a vw commercial on my reel where the filmmaker was very nice and relaxed and hmm. um i got i got this the, the clip i wrote the music and the director got back to me and said that uh, he doesn't like 10 seconds in the middle so I did a couple of versions, and I think my my strength, my my main talent is is storytelling, and th- that includes the visual side of it. And so at some point, I knew that the issue wasn't the music. So I sent him uh, a version of the spot which I had re-edited with the exact same music, and I said, <laughs> "This is your project. I will do whatever you want. Please don't think I'm not." being respectful or something, I know there is a time limit for you. So I'm trying to help you as quickly as I can. And he looked at the spot and he understood what I was doing and he was cool with it. And that's the spot that aired basically with that change. Hmm. And uh, I've have, I've made a really good friend who uh, who was struck, uh, stuck in editing where I where I spoke up and I was able to help him. And he he's very, very gracious with crediting me that. Having said that, I am aware that this is also overstepping. So it is, I'm trying to help. And if people know me, they understand where I'm coming mm-hmm. from. And I, I, I always try to make the project number one and then everybody's egos, including my own number two. But look, it doesn't always work. It doesn't always work. Sometimes I say things and people get it the wrong way. And then I blame it on being German, <laughs> try to, <laughs> to get out of that. And uh, if that doesn't work, I, I may have just talked myself out of a follow-up gig. So you're saying, oh, no, that's just my Teutonic personality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tried, tried to do a lot of things. Like, uh, <laughs> any, any excuse, you know. Um, out of curiosity, yeah. I was just thinking about your friend's approach. Um, have you ever read or heard of Robert Cialdini? Yeah. He mentions in there that giving a piece of ownership or a task to somebody who has buy-in, like a supervisor or whatever, will give them a partial ownership of it. 
And through doing that, then they will suddenly be promoting you because they think it's theirs. That That is, that's good advice. I, I just finished Gary Marshall's biography and he had, um, I think it was Bed Midler. Wow. I'm not really sure. I think it was Bed Midler uh, consult on the flower arrangements. So she wasn't bored in her downtime. And <laughs> I, I, no, that, that is really good advice. And um, I think one thing that I'm learning is that it's, it's the more fluid and the more open it is, the better is, it is for everyone. But it's, um, you know, you're always building with a new project. You're very often it's like building a new society. You know, you have a new government, you have new foot soldiers and all this. And um, I, I think one of my... Um, so like in my, my biography, in my biography, I say I'm coming from a village with more cows than people. Yeah, tell and me about it. that is very, very, very true. Um, it's 150 people and definitely more cows than that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I, I feel is very comes with that is that if I'm a jerk on Monday, I don't get to play soccer on Tuesday with anybody. Mm. So, you know, you're a jerk on Monday once. You sat on Tuesday and then you learn your lesson. And so there's this thing in me where I'm always thinking long-term and teamwork and all this. And of course, you know, you make mistakes on that journey, but that's, that's a mindset, uh, which as you can imagine, when I moved to LA, that gets tested every day here. But, uh, um, but I'm trying to, I, I always, with every project, I'm trying to, to do the kind of whatever helps the most and sometimes it's saying something unpleasant and then i try to say it in the in the calmest nicest most constructive pos way possible because i feel that i'm letting down my client if i don't but yeah it's it's tricky the integration totally works and i if i understand because people one of the problems with music is people love music so much and that's why people feel they have such an authority in music so it's 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 really you mistake your passion for something for knowledge and that is a big part of my my work and i have this problem with artists parents when i work with artists or the artists themselves i have this problem with people who are not music supervisors but want to have a song for something because they like the band Mm. Or when there's a connotation, um, was, my, my first American project was um, a beautiful handmade uh, animation short film from CalArts. And, and I love animations. And, and so it was great for me to work on this. And the young filmmaker, she was a student, um, um, wanted to have a sitar in this hand-drawn a piece that was about a mom kind of like the, the babies grew out of the mom in animation and then they flew away and it was kind of like she, I'm sure she did this for her mom to say like how much her mom worked and then the babies just leave the nest it was a really beautiful piece mm -hmm. but because of the way it was animated and everything if you add just one sitar note to it this turns into a trip it turns into something completely different and you're throwing mm. the audience off hallucination yeah and the thing that I am struggling with in my work almost on a daily basis is when I say something like this, people mistake this for my personal opinion ah. because in their case, it's a personal opinion and it's not. So I have no problem with the sitar. I have a problem with your message clashing 
And mm -hmm. that's where, yeah. And then, I mean, at the end of the day, it's the filmmaker. The filmmaker makes the call. If the filmmaker wants a sitar, there's going to be a sitar. So and what happened there? I wrote a very beautiful atonal piece, which was used. And she also then at some point, I, I don't know how, I think just for private screenings or something, used the pop song. So both of those things, no sitar. It's the other thing with music now is I, it's a little bit of, we have a lot of the rings uh, problem at the moment where everybody wants the big choir, the big everything, or you want to have the big pop song. Mm. And the more you go towards indie or smaller images, the sillier that gets, but try to convince a filmmaker to, to, you know, to use a smaller music is, is, is kind of tricky. It does happen, to be fair, it does happen the other way around. I have a very fantastic filmmaker that I work with, and mm -hmm. we did a beautiful set of commercials, and he said, well, I really like the music. Unfortunately, it sounds like music for a commercial. <laughs> and I said, it is a commercial. And he said, yes, but still. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so so I had to uncommercialize it, and actually I, I unmixed it. I made the transitions a little worse and made it a little bit more bumpy and a little more so it felt more honest hmm. okay less polished yeah less polished and one thing was really interesting in, in this one was that that it's a series of eight commercials and one of the commercials uh the main character is a piano tuner and so the mm -hmm. piano tuner just in the middle of the piece plays one chord so i built this entire score so that one chord that he plays in real life both timing wise pitch wise sound production everything aligns mm -hmm. and i was so happy and so proud and uh, it was yeah, 23rd of December at midnight, uh, almost midnight, he calls me and says, oh, we have like this deadline and all this. And that transition, I feel like I'm cheating the audience. They need to hear that this chord is really played and your score is something else. Hmm. And so I, I went in and I made the transition worse, send it to him. And then half an hour later, he calls me and says, yeah, that's a little bit better. But basically said, can you make it worse? <laughs> and four versions later, it was very clear what was the score, what was the thing, and that's that's what aired. That's interesting. Is that like um, people still love listening to the guitar, partly because you can hear the scraping on the strings? With I feel like there's an emotional connection with the real strings, yeah. fingers really scraping, the pick, you know, making a noise, things like that. I, I think. Perfect. Yeah, I think there's there's something to be said generally for for honesty, and it's it's surprising how many times that becomes honesty becomes an issue when I um, when I work with artists, for example, and where where people pick up on it, people just pick up on who you are and what your intentions are somehow. And in in this commercial, in this particular commercial, uh, the director went out of his way to get a skydiver who's in a wheelchair for one of those commercials and he got um he got people that you wouldn't directly use that you wouldn't usually see as first people in a commercial they got a guy who's a drummer but he has um he's hearing impaired mm. so he kind of like he needs he feels his headphones in place with that and things like this and so for him this whole journey was about honesty and and listening and taking the character seriously so i totally understand where he's coming from and I totally understand how I, he doesn't want me to compromise his honesty. Mm. So, 
but 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 generally yes i mean when when you the guitar is a great example all these like little small extra things make 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 guitar so enjoyable and so so nice to listen to and uh, fake strum guitars just never sound right yeah i kind of you know especially the days of auto tune and have you ever heard of the term uncanny valley uh yeah where do i, I do yeah it's a, a term used for um, androids and um, robots that they look, the closer they look to human, the yeah. creepier they get because they're just not okay. quite there. I'm wondering if maybe some of the synth elements and the auto tune elements and fake guitar, maybe it's a little uncanny valley. Like it's just too perfect, but it's not quite there. So that, that small margin is a, a gulf. Yeah, yeah, I think so. There's also there there is um, the complexities of sound traveling in a real room change something, and then there is um, if you have fake guitar, at some point it will reuse the same samples, so it will actually replay the same audio. And if you have a good sample uh, sample of something, it might take you to play the same note sixteen times until you hear an actual repeat. But at the end of the day, there are repeats. And when you play in real life, every single note is an original. And you can hear that. You can hear the little small things. And recording a drummer is really interesting in, in that context because there's so much sound traveling around in a room when a drummer records that even though there's really excellent fake drum programs now, there is something about it, the messiness that just elevates it to to, to another level. Mm-hmm. And um, for modern scores, a lot of the faster, more kind of the, um, the action strings, mm-hmm. they almost sound better fake because they're written and produced in a way and we're so used to them being very mechanical and very mm-hmm. uniform and very fake. So... I, I sometimes tell clients that there's really, if you have a score like this, there's really no no reason to book an orchestra. While if you want to have the big sweeping, breathing kind of romantic score or a cello solo, yeah, mm-hmm. then it makes a huge difference. Okay, that's interesting. I, I never thought of that. So um, it's kind of like CGI for the for the ear. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and to, yeah, I mean, when you watch when you watch a movie, and sometimes the you can see how the image goes soft because they're now introducing all these CGI and the set extensions and all this. I mean, even people who are not into the movie making process or something, they must get that we're entering a different world. And that's kind of like, it takes away a little bit. So I, I don't know. I, I, I'm a huge fan of what technology can do. And I love, I'm so fortunate that I, I sometimes I have a coffee and I have an idea and I come home and like half an hour later, I can listen to this and it already sounds like music. And so I don't want to trash talk technology too much and all these samples sure. because it's um, I'm currently I'm working on a piano piece at the moment and I'm blending three different sample banks together. And I'm, I, I use actual reverbs that were recorded in actual spaces and I can make something that um, I sent that to somebody at a label and he said, I didn't know you play the piano this well. And I was just like thinking, wow, this is awesome. Because mm. A, I do. First of all, I don't. I absolutely do not play the piano that well. And um, it's just, it's it's great that you can get to these things 
now quickly and that you can do something and you can make play something to a client or yourself or an artist or something relatively quickly. Hmm. So it's just a matter of using tools where they're appropriate. It is. And it's also, um, it's also a thing where the, the problem is of course with, laziness and convenience and, and these things when you work on a computer when you have a session in front of you there's a grid in front of you and the grid when you start out is very mechanical so when you want to do classical music of course to have this live and breathe you need to totally ignore that which makes all post-production more difficult and annoying uh-huh. or you need to adjust the grid to your music if you don't do that it's you know it loses you know, why do we have the conductor? You know, it loses the, the the natural classical music flow. And so it's, I think it is a matter of self-control and discipline and pride in your work as well, where you kind of need to catch yourself not following what the technology offers you too much, but actually using the technology to tell the story. That's an interesting thing. Um, I always like these terms where you can use the same phrase and say the good news is blank the bad news is blank and it's the same thing and one of them that i use or i've heard a lot is um it's never been easier to start your own podcast that's the good news yeah the bad news is it's never been easier to start your own podcast do you have some of that in the um composing world where it's never been easier to generate music on your computer yes That's i mean it's, <laughs> it, it's it is it is pretty um it's pretty hilarious at times um so i studied classical music i i do not come from a family where we have classical music nobody's a pianist or anything in my my family so this is a very far stretch for me mm-hmm. and for some reason and i still don't know why i respected the craftsmanship when i started out when i didn't have it and I, I really, I, I, I don't know why, but I, I just started out and I felt I needed to learn everything, playing in a rock band, writing a song. I felt like I always, I'm constantly touching my limitations, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so I started to work on, on my craftsmanship as a writer. And then I went to university and of course at university, first two years or first year is all about accepting what you don't know and kind of like opening up and basically, and the more I develop my skills, the more I talk to people who have been doing this for a while or established composers, or you read about um, the classics. There seems to be, you know, the, the 10,000 hour rule, what they say about the Beatles mm-hmm. or something. In classical composition, there seems to be a thing where people say that it takes 15 years until you write what you want and not what your limitations allow you. And and so and when people say but Mozart was only 21 or something and then you see that his dad started training him when he was 4 and it all starts to make sense and i really um i really really believe um this is true and i um i go out of my way now you know christmas is coming up i'm not taking off i'm i'm doing i'm writing studies at home for myself to expand the technique and stuff and so i have I've spent a lot of time in my life and um, to work on these skills. And I feel that I kind of need to earn the term composer on a regular basis, you know, so to, to develop and, 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 and it's not a protected term. So basically if you buy a MacBook pro mm-hmm. or you call yourself a composer because you just drag two Apple loops into GarageBand, 
there's nothing I can do about that. So my journey yeah. of devoting my life to this, to somebody else's journey of playing two notes on a piano, it, it creates the same name, the same title at the end. And that's just the way it is. And it's difficult sometimes um, because there's so much pre-made stuff. It's difficult sometimes when you have people using pre-made stuff like DJs more than anything and using that for their reels and stuff. Um, so it's, it is a little, it is a little tricky and it's a little tricky when you, when I, when I work with artists um, to communicate the difference in skills in songwriting. And that is a big problem because there's a lot of people where they put their life on hold. They drop all their savings or they spend a lot of money getting a music career as a singer or something and totally not understanding that the oil of your industry is the song and you're having an amateur write the oil of your operation and they wonder why wow. they fail. And so there is, there is this aspect. And I, like, I can tell you here in LA, I can name 20 artists that are on tour, which are, uh, that are play here like locally and that, you know, they play in front of seven people where there's great singers or people with cool stage personality but they don't understand this and that's basically the end and so in my case in my case this happens all the time and i i'm kind of um i kind of wish people would understand it better not for my sake but for their sake because i you know you you see a lot of people in this in this industry struggling sure one thing to note you brought up the uh, 10,000 hour rule and i always like to correct the record a little bit because Malcolm Gladwell um, brought it out. Anders yeah. Erickson created it initially. Then Malcolm Gladwell wrote about it, not in Blink, but um, a later book. And everybody lumps it down to saying, oh, you're going to get 10,000 hours of practice. That's not it. It's 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Yeah. Which is significantly different Yes. You have to, what you are describing is you are always working a little outside of your comfort zone. Yes. And that's, You're, that's very important. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. And I actually, like a couple of days ago, I actually read about this and where somebody also complained about the 10,000, it basically set the deliberate and I, I totally agree. And I, my personally, I would add the, the outside of the comfort zone is, is a vital part of this. And it's also, um, there is something, there's a personal and a professional mindset, and those are two different things. Mm -hmm. And um, the professional mindset here means that if I realize that I have a weak spot somewhere, that I need to go there, and I need to go there until it's solved and it's mm -hmm. taken care of. And the amateur mind spot means that when you have a weak spot somewhere, you can, I don't know, BS about it or hide it or do something else and it, it will catch up at some point. So I, yeah, I, I, I agree. The outside of the comfort zone is very, is very important. Having said yeah. that, this is a little unfair because I get bored so easily that my comfort zone is doing something I can't do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'm kind of like uniquely qualified outside my comfort zone. Oh, there you go. Um, you brought up a uh, DJs and I actually was almost afraid to ask, but since you had mentioned them, can you, Break down the difference between a composer and a DJ. 
Um, I, I, I did this thing jokingly where I have a DJ character called DJ Play Pusher, and like he has all these like fake YouTube videos where it's just his finger going pressing play, and that is that is his achievement. Uh, that's of course not entirely true. There's DJs who work with vinyl who spend their life learning music and who can react to moment, and there's a lot of art artfulness and skill in there. Mm-hmm. Having said that. Um, as a as a composer, the idea is that you do something from scratch. You know how to actually write music and you know write music for whatever instrument, artist, or whatever is is necessary. So you're basically laying the groundwork, and a DJ then maybe meshes up what somebody like a producer or something produces or um, combines the songs to the best possible flow for the night. Of course, now this is these lines are a little blurred because there's a couple of people who started out being a DJ who are now officially artists or music producers. Hmm. It's always interesting when you're in a room full of professionals who work in this industry, how the perception of people is so very different than public. So, um, so I'm doing the professional thing. I'm not going to name any names. One of my buddies worked on, on some, on somebody's album, like one of the very big names. Mm-hmm. And the way these albums are, this particular album was created was that um, a couple of writing teams all around the world would work on material. And then each of them kind of would produce an album or an outline for an album. And at some point, this very well-known DJ slash producer would travel around and listen to this music and would say, I like this, this one faster kill the other eight. Hmm. And that was the involvement as a producer. <laughs> I'm not saying it's with everyone, but there is, yeah, there is, you know, there's, there's artists where the white perception is that they write their own material and everybody knows that is not true. And I, I, I've heard of that, that yeah. there are some DJs now who have um, feeder DJs almost under them. And a uh, a lower level DJ will throw down some beats and then the bigger DJ takes and goes, okay, yeah, that's my beat. Yeah. And goes with it. It's uh, that. Yeah. Go ahead. It's, I mean, with, I, I, I'm always a little bit in two minds with this. On the one hand, it's very difficult to make money with music and build a career. So I have respect for anybody who, who manages to build a career. And like there's DJs that get a hundred thousand people motivated to come out on some dirt field to dance. So, I, I feel that deserves respect. So there's nothing like, you know, like making people happy, throwing a nice party and all this, you you somehow managed to to get in this position. And I want to respect that. There is, of course, also this, this thing with music where at some point when you own the pipeline or when you have good control over the pipeline where the quality of the music or what you actually do or what somebody else does becomes secondary and access becomes primary thing. And that's... Um, if you check young artists under 25 and you check their financial background right now, you'd be surprised how many rich kids are singing in front of us. Hmm. And yeah. That's interesting. Now that brings up the idea of music and producers. You had mentioned producers before. I don't know. Is this correct? I heard that in pop music that there's, literally a handful of producers who produce everybody. And that's why it's sounding the same. And there's a couple of 
writers out of Swe- um, Sweden, essentially, yeah. who are behind all of pop music. It's yeah, I mean, it's it's a couple of crews, it's a couple of people, but it's not. It, um, yeah, there's a lot of people. Uh, there's a lot of acts and a lot of stuff on the radio that maybe boils down to ten production teams or five production teams, and. Um, Part of that is because they figured out something that worked. Part of it is, is because of the, the access of the artist. Um, it is a problem because things start to sound the same. And anything with like with music is you, of course, you want to have this spark of creativity. And I, I remember when, when Nirvana came out, I was like 14 or something when Nirvana came out. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, no matter what music you listened to before, like the hip hop kids would listen to Nirvana as well. Mm-hmm. And it was something it just captured. There was a truth to it. It just captured you. And you know, like, this was real. This was the real deal. And um, I just wish every now and then or more often um, we would have artists that, you know, that do stuff that is meaningful, that is their own, and that stands for something. And there are a couple of artists who do that. And sometimes even behind, like, pop songs where you won't expect there is a, there's an interesting story, but it, it's a little tricky. And then we go into things like, you know, loudness wars, how to produce something. And, and it's, I just give you an example as a producer, one eternal struggle is in 2000, from 2010 or something on. And now is that everything is, is squashed. It's very, very compressed, meaning everything is very loud mm-hmm. And then everything has a lot of high end. What that means is if you, if, if everything has a lot of high end and high frequency in a way that is your, your, the light that shines on the sound is a little brighter. And in mm-hmm. a way it's a little closer to the lens if you want to be in a visual analogy. So okay. basically a lot of 2018 pop music is incredibly too brightly lit people jamming their face against the lens, against the camera. <laughs> so, you lose depth of field and you lose um, dynamics and you lose expression and you lose like, you know, like how sometimes a bridge goes to a more introspective place or a different, Mm -hmm. yeah, different spot. And you lose a lot of these things. So if you produce in 2018 and you want to do something that is, you know, what's called radio ready, you have, there is a constant clash. You need to do something that is kind of like as radical in a way as this, but you also want to do something that is nice, pleasant and meaningful. And that's not outdated in five minutes. And uh, that's tricky. Yeah. It seems really, really tough because I I don't know. It feels like um, maybe I'm wrong, but it's part of corporatism almost like uh, you have only so many media companies. They own everything. You have all the chain restaurants, chain this chain. It's, it seems to be of a, it is, it is. And a lot of, um, a lot of work in music has come this way, both as a composer, but also music as a music producer. Um, I don't know. I, I'm what I'm trying for my for myself, for my well being, and for my love of the craft is I'm trying to separate the two things a little bit. So, like when I'm in my room here, songwriting with somebody, I, I'm just grateful for their great voice or for the moment. Mm-hmm. Then I do what I possibly can to protect the song to fit so it makes sense for for an audience but it's not blindly running after some trend or sounding too corporate and yeah and then you can hope for the best but it, 
it is it, it is a very tricky um it is a very tricky industry because um it's not like in sports where the person who actually runs the fastest wins mm. and any of the artists i i produce they will now switch off this podcast because i use the sports analogy over and over and over again but it's just so true so what you can do is you basically do what you can do on your end so you theoretically could run the fastest mm-hmm. and then you just have to hope that the that the race or the track or something is set up in a certain way that you get the chance to yeah that's and, that's a fair yeah and it's 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 a it is um it is a judgment call very often where i try to go i try to make the decision based on the story of the artist and the story of the song and um by that you basically give up on a lot of radio airplay and other things but you might have a longer shelf life and that has its value like a cult following almost um some bands out there i mean the grateful dead only had one hit in their entire career yeah i mean grateful dead is the crappy hit yeah people people uh, it's a great example because you cannot download the live experience and so there's something which is beautiful like you know you want to be part of this you have to come out mm-hmm. and that that is something where you know you cannot have the grateful dead 2 play or somebody else it needs to be them and you need to be there and that's that's of course that is very cool and when i when i talk to to younger artists i always kind of like see how they feel about playing a lot of shows because that's really you know that's where you can you can make a connection, but you can also create something um, that cannot be downloaded. And while venues are very corporate, the experience is not. And that's kind of, yeah. It's kind so you of, can live in the moment. Yeah. And it's it's also, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure you have the same thing. You know, like you go online or you watch TV and you just basically, you appreciate when somebody's not lying to you. And... Um, so, you know, when you have when you have an artist that sings about his or her life or something that means something to them and it's genuine, you feel, you know, maybe maybe this helps you through a bad day or something listening to the song or, you know, like you feel you're not alone or there's all these these things outside of just the notes on the paper. And the more of course you produce something that is just like without any character or or cleaned up too much or too corporate you lose that and um basically basically my 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 agenda or my idea for this is um if you don't have a lot of money for radio promotion and radio promotion is really expensive your music Mm -hmm. better means something and Mm -hmm. and then even if you play in front of like seven people somewhere you might be able with this show to make the connection with one of those seven people that will remember you in a year and you know, that's, and it grows from there. That actually is a perfect pivot point because you're speaking about music and, and making people feel, um, you're an expert in audio branding and I was hoping you can maybe talk a little bit about that. I'm guessing that it's like the Intel chimes. Yep. The Intel and the T-Mobile audio logos are like the best known, I guess. And the, I mean, the, the starting point is just like you have a visual logo, you have a sound logo. Mm-hmm. And um, just like it happens with the visual logo, you can update it a little bit and it goes with the time, but the core of it usually stays the same. And um, you build brand recognition 
and with that brand recognition, uh, the value of the audio logo increases. So the value of that in, of those Intel chimes now um, it's almost immeasurable because you hear that and in your mind you are transport you exactly know where this is. You know when you do a Hollywood movie and somebody's phone rings and it's the T-Mobile ringtone. Mm. You know, and it's there. Um, there's a psychology behind it that, especially with a fragmented media, uh, media and touch points that brands have with consumers, is that the way we perceive sound is that basically it ties all of this together almost subconsciously. So it mm-hmm. kind of it it integrates the brand experience in a deeper, meaningful way. We heard sound in the womb, right? Yes, we do. And um, that's also, you know, the reason why you sleep so well in the car, because that's close to the sound in the womb. I, I, I produced a sounding baby crib that had to pass medical testing. So I spent a lot of time with my head on this like sounding baby crib, trying to get the vibration right. And we actually bought uh, recordings from within the womb to feed oh, wow. into that baby crib. And there's, we're very, Sound is is very very powerful, and there's a lot of good things you can do with sound. With audio mm-hmm. branding, it like when you just talk about the logo because it's seven seconds or five mm-hmm. seconds, that is something that's like a little, it's like a little connector. It's a little hello basically, but you can go deeper. And one example for would be um, you have a chain of restaurants, and you treat these restaurants for sound so that they're incredibly quiet and that the sound doesn't travel. So when you're in a booth talking to somebody, you really feel it's just you and that other person. Mm-hmm. And so by not having so much reverberation, what you change is the signal to noise ratio. The reverberation is the noise. What you actually say is the signal. We feel very calm, very happy as psychologically as humans if the ratio is hit right. So you can set up a restaurant by soundproofing it. So when you walk in there and it's noisy outside, you instantly feel at home just because of the change of audio ambience. And so I that's not a, did that. <laughs> sorry. I wish more did that. Yes. Um, and, and so it also works the other way around where there's, um, um, I, I like to use this example when I do presentations for that, when, Somebody's presenting something to you and that person is wearing like a super weird shirt with all these colors that don't match. So you go into that meeting and this person tells you something and you walk out of this meeting and you say, okay, I like the guy. I like the presentation. I think he has a lot of good points. I don't know what's up with the t-shirt. <laughs> now, exactly the same meeting. You walk in somewhere and the, the place is very uh, reverby and it feeds back certain frequencies to you that make you feel uncomfortable Mm. But visually, we are we are stronger putting these, stripping these elements apart. Audio-wise, this is difficult for most people. So you go into the same meeting, you get the same guy, the same presentation, but the room acoustics are really bad. And you walk out and subconsciously you feel there's something up here. And that's really the best kind of like explanation how to work carefully with sound when you do like brand communication or like, you know, even your answering machine um, when you, when your big brand, when somebody calls you, how you set up the store and it goes as far as like, you know, Bentley designing a relay sound when they don't have actual relays anymore 
in 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 their center console, so you mm. can hear, and they build a speaker to make that noise that the Bentley <laughs> used to have. So you have that feeling. So um, it's, I think it's a very it's a very interesting field where you can do a lot of communication consciously and subconsciously. Yeah, it seems like your whole field, um, beyond just the uh, branding, but in composing a work, and I think I talked about it with Silas as well, but um, you're conveying a mood and you're trying to influence the audience. Yes, and um, yeah, I, the, the storytelling is, 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 is very interesting about this because um, you have moments where you just, in your gut, you know, if I leave the actor alone here, this is going to be so much more powerful than anything I could do with music. And then you have moments where you compose 100% the opposite of the music that the director asked for and it's the right call. Mm. And sometimes you just, in comedy, for example, a lot in comedy is just move it along. You know, the music in the background is just for one reason, so it doesn't feel slow. And so the mm. the... the the part of the storytelling there can be very powerful, can be very, very subtle. And I think one of the reasons why I'm attracted to it is that there is a certain amount of logic and a certain amount of chaos to this where you need to be like a silly seven-year-old making this decision or an architect or both. And that's kind of interesting to solve these little issues or riddles. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure. How do you choose which way you're going to go because I feel like you could achieve the same result in, in two different ways or with two different styles of music completely, but yet one would be appropriate. One wouldn't, how, how do you, for, for me, for, for, um, it's very like the length of a piece is very important. If I, if I do a commercial that is 30 seconds and somebody's talking for 20 seconds, so I'm really, I, I need to cover 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. I start with being the kid. I start to kind of feel my way through this and just basically respond to what I hear on, on, and then the next step is the architect kind of making, creating the context, like making sure that it's produced well, but also making sure it kind of aligns with, with everything. If it becomes more technical or a bigger piece, I do it the other way around where I plan it out like an architect first, and then I allow myself some room to, to be silly. And I find if I'm just improvising, that gets me okay results. And if I just plan and do this very mathematical strategically, I get okay results. But the really fun stuff happens when there's a little bit of friction between those two worlds. That makes sense. Now, when I was looking at your reel and I wanted to ask you, do you do your own Foley or does somebody else come in to do like the sound effects? That no, I are- um I think in the real, there's one piece that got delivered with Foley. Um, I do a lot of, um, you know, we, we, we talked earlier about how difficult it is for a filmmaker to give their baby away. And mm-hmm. so what happened in, in my career was that the filmmakers that were happy with the way they were treated and they trusted me, they asked me to do other things. So sound design, mixing, audio cleanup. And my, the last project I worked on was... Um, is, is a music festival where they had issues at the actual festival. And I rebuilt the session and the experience of being there for them. Hmm. And so 
you know, that that is not a composer's job. That is usually more a sound engineer kind of job, but partially I'm getting, I'm doing this because I can, but also because people like the way they were treated and that I approach things from a storytelling perspective. So for this Mm -hmm. particular thing, for example, I know how tricky it is to, when you manage an artist or something, you always want, you know, they always need to look like there's a great interaction with their audience. So when they play a show and there is a great interaction with the audience and, you know, they say, Hey, and then they hold the microphone into, you know, towards the audience and then the microphone fails and the whole audience yells back at them. (laughs) And we watch that on screen and we don't hear anything from the audience. You know, there is, it's a technical thing that needs to be fixed, but it's also a storytelling kind of thing where you're like, okay, these artists now all of a sudden seem like they have their own party and nobody's joining in. And, Mm -hmm. and so I, I do, uh, I do my own Foley very often for, for commercials and for shorter things for like up to two, three minutes for longer stuff. I usually would hire somebody. Um, I've done Foley for a computer game. I would have hired somebody, but it was mainly in an office setting. So it was, relatively manageable if i would do i don't know if somebody would ask me to do audio post for a 90 minute horror film i would not sound design all 90 minutes i would get somebody else for that yeah i was just curious about that because i there's so many different layers like um i I had mentioned earlier that you make me think of voiceover too it's one of those that you're everywhere i mean and it's funny because i kind of came into voiceover thinking that, okay, audiobooks and maybe somebody talking in the background of documentaries, but it's like, no, there's promos, there's games, there's this, there's that. And I feel like you guys are probably hand in hand that you, you have voiceover all the time with a lot of what you do, especially commercials. I do. I do also record voiceover for, for some of my clients. And sometimes I cast voiceover. Um, So we, I had a, a my, an interesting voiceover casting where there is a brand that builds very high end hi-fi systems and they go up to half a million dollars for their hi-fi system. And the cheapest one is like 120,000, but wow. the, the company for the company, um, one very important thing to communicate is this is not for the rich guy to die in his living room unused. These pieces are made by hand and the people who built this, they're serious about this. Mm-hmm. So, when you choose a voiceover artist for something like this, you want to have somebody that sounds like somebody who could have this uh, very expensive stereo, but you really don't want to have the old guy who owns a yacht as well, because that's not what they want to transport. So all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. which kind of English speaker to get became really tricky. And um, because if you get a full on Englishman, there's an association with it being a full-on Englishman. If you get a certain age or a certain subtone into the in the voice, all of this tells a story. And the brand, the, the company had a very specific wish that this is for people who really, really, really love sound. It's hmm. it's not just it's expensive, but it's not meant to be just a luxury object. It's meant to be that people understand we actually put this money into our devices. So you're looking for passion. Yeah, you're looking for passion, but you're also looking for, in, in a way, what is interesting is that a lot of that times music is more like aspirational than actually precise. And mm-hmm. here, the casting for this was, uh, we, we, we ended up using a man who sounded, 
I guess, 10, 15 years younger than most people that can afford those um, those hi-fis. And we got somebody from um, neutral American, kind of East Coast, not an East Coast accent, but somebody like almost very clean American uh, because that sounded the most universal. And like so, my accent. Huh? Like my accent, essentially. Yes. Very and, baseline. And yeah, we could have just hired you. Oh, they're up oh, next yeah. time. No. <laughs> and yeah, so the voiceover can uh, can become very interesting. Maybe one more thing about the sound design and the voice together. Because I sculpt my products or my, my projects, um, when I do voice casting and sound design and all this, and I get the chance to do at least the first mix or something, I can use all of these elements as if they're a part of a composition. And I, I like that. Mm. It gets unmanageable in a feature where it gets really tricky to do this uh, because it's just at some point you don't have the time, but for a 30 second commercial, it's, it's nice. I like doing that. Doing these other things, does that enhance the job though? Make it more fun because you're kind of getting to play in different areas that you don't necessarily deal with all the time. I know. I like it. I told for me, it enhances it. And I, I see myself as, part of the storytelling process. So um, having, you know, working with actors or recording voiceover and these things, they're, they're fun. And I, I mean, the other day I had a, or earlier this year, somebody brought a recording of uh, a very well-known actor for a um, animation project. And then you have him read every line 12 times and you start splicing this together and it becomes, you know, like the actor is the performer. No, there's no illusions here, but it becomes mm. uh, a, a vital part of storytelling. You know, like how do I do I connect with this line where he gets more introspective with another introspective, or I'm picking? Am I picking the take where he's picking up pace again? And mm. it's it, yeah. I, I as you probably have figured out by now, I like my job. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's awesome. And yeah. now um, to wrap things up, what what is coming up for you? So I just um, yesterday or two days ago finished this piano piece. That's the first piece in a long time that I've just written for myself. And it's called White Noise for Piano. And um, I'm going to do two versions of this. One is going to be a classical piano piece and hope to see it in the concert hall as much as possible. But also because of the topic and, and the way the music flows, I also hope that people just listen to it on their headphones at home because it's kind of like a little journey for your mind. Um, yeah, I've heard part of it. It's, it's quite beautiful. Thank you. It's, it's, um, so I, I, and then I want to do a version which has is a little tricked out with all kinds of production technique and a string orchestra. So I have these two and maybe turn them into an album, but I'm very happy I finished the composition. So that's one of the things that I, I will be working on and I'm looking into who to play this and, you know, which pianist. And that's one of the next thing that I'm writing um, two classical church hymns for a church, which is also a new project for me, which is interesting. Um, so I get to record choir for them and arrange and write for choir. And it's, um, they're, it's the second time I'm doing this for this client. I, I just finished a song for them and they liked it. And um, it's, it's interesting because it's, um, it's turning something that almost sounds like Broadway or musical into a classical piece for a classical choir that would work in a European church in, I don't know, 1600 or mm. 1700. So um, that's a fun one. 
And then do you have a Christmas playlist by chance? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. I uh, yeah, my yeah, I should. No, I don't have a Christmas playlist. And then the last thing, what I my personal thing, what I want to do is um, I really like the Miseducation of Lauren Hill that album, and I think it strikes a perfect balance of having coolness, being personal, having some rap, Motown, and everything on top of each other in a very meaningful way to keep you listening. And just, just, just it just turned 20, I think. And I think for the next year, I want to do an album like this myself. Like, you know, different, very, very different. But that that idea with a something that is groovy, something that has some good hooks, meaningful lyrics, soulful voice, and Awesome. If possible, I'd like to um, tack on one of your tracks to the end of this episode so people can hear sure. a sample. So we'll, we'll get with that um, offline. Right. Now, where can people find you, Lars? Um, so my name, Lars Deutsch, L-A-R-S-D-E-U-T-S-C-H. Google is really the best because my website is like two years behind, but you can find a lot of my recent <laughs> work um, on on Behance, Facebook, or any of those, or you can, when you find me, you can send me an email and I'm happy to point you towards the artists I produced or the commercials I scored, which may not be on my website. Okay. Well, I'll definitely put links in the show notes and um, I'll also put a, a link to your reel because I think that's a pretty awesome thing for people to check out. All right. Thanks. Well, Hey, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session.